Welcome to the Kingdom Work for Christ online radio show. My name is Emma Bordergama. I am so glad that you joined me today. You were just listening to Elise Metallo's This Is My Story. It's called Blessed Assurance after the hymn, My Story. And it's just such a beautiful way to start. I'm so grateful that she lets us use this every single Wednesday. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Let's start out the right way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. King of kings, thank you for this day. Thank you that in all humility we can truthfully say that we are nothing without you. Thank you, God, for the Great Commission, the one that invites us to co-labor with you on a day-to-day basis. But we just pray that you will take over this hour. We thank you for the privilege of breath every single day. And we pray fervently for those, Lord, who don't yet believe in you, for you're pursuing them with all your might. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Kingdom Work for Christ online radio show. I'm so, so thankful that you have tuned in. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome to the show. You're about to find out a little bit about what we do and, you know, what's the whole deal with Kingdom Work for Christ. Why is this important? How do we do this every week? And for those of you who've been tuning in, thank you so much. Thank you that you continue to tune in. You continue to give your feedback. And I just love you dearly. And I'm so humbled to serve you in that way. So my name is Emma Bordergama. What do we do on this show? And what is Kingdom Work for Christ? What's going on? So Kingdom Work for Christ is the full-time job of inviting Jesus into the day today. Now, you may be wondering, okay, how does that, why is that so important? Why is this entire ministry around that? Because the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, gives us a beautiful set of instruction. And Jesus gave this to his followers at the time, right after he resurrected and right before going to the Father. And he said this, he said, one, Know that all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Two, therefore, go and make disciples of nations. Three, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Four, teaching them to obey my commandments. And five, know that I'm with you always till the end of the age. A lot of times when we hear about the Great Commission, we we hear about going and making disciples of nations and baptizing them and teaching them to obey God's commandments, but not necessarily the very first instruction and the very last instruction, which in many respects is the alpha and the omega of what it means to be a Christ follower, of what it means to be an infectious Christ follower for Jesus in today's environments. And so Kingdom Work for Christ is all about repositioning the Great Commission in our lives, being able to answer the question, who do you work for? Or better yet, hey, what do you do for a living? Can you and I truthfully answer that, anything having to do with Christ in our answers, in the forefront of our thoughts? Or if we want to get really real, 
who we work for, our bosses, our companies, our families, our organizations, the things that really occupy our day-to-day. For those of us who are unemployed, our search for a job, for that daily bread, that's who we work for. That's what we're really, really spending our time in, right? And so Kingdom Work for Christ exactly is about going back and revisiting what God wants from us. If we can be sold out for Jesus and our job is to be his follower on a day-to-day basis, and then everything else is a byproduct of that, how much more transformational would the lives of those around us and our lives be? So that's what Kingdom Work for Christ is about. What do you do for a living? I'm a Christ follower. I'm a kingdom worker for Christ. During the daytime, I'm placed in an environment with a lot of technology and a lot of uh, people who are in technology. But that doesn't stop me from exercising my very primary role of being a Christ follower and a kingdom worker for Christ. So on this show, what have we done? Well, we have done a lot of plunging, a lot of deep diving, if you will. Okay, so we've started out this show at the inception, and the the very focus of this show is to go into various environments. And so we have gone into environments like gossip, like chronic illness. Really? You can do kingdom work for Christ when people are chronically ill? Oh, but what a great opportunity for the Great Commission to be carried out. We've gone into environments like sexuality, especially in environments where we're facing things like premarital sex or homosexuality or broken sexuality, right? We've gone into that environment. We've gone into environments with science. What is it to be a kingdom worker for Christ in the midst of an environment that is filled with scientists, that is very science centered? And a lot of times we hear about the dichotomy between science and Christianity. And and quite frankly, if we really pause and we start to observe what science has discovered, we will find that a lot of it actually supports the creationism much more than it supports evolution. So we had two scientists actually come on on the show, and that was just a fascinating show. I had such a good time, mainly also because the two of them are good friends, and we go way back to college, and so we just had a really good time in the Lord. But we got a chance to explore science as an environment. Fitness. What does it mean to do kingdom work for Christ when we are in fitness? What does it mean to do kingdom work for Christ when we are resting? Wait a minute. Is that such a thing? One of the shows was about vessel work. And so we went and we looked at the way in which God will fill us so that he can work us to be better vessels for him. Clean out the dishes, right? Sometimes you need that deep cleaning. And that's what God does. He stills us so that in the middle of that pause, his voice is louder than it's ever been in our lives. We've talked about the environment most recently of witchcraft. Wicca is one of the most, the fastest growing religions among high schoolers and early early college students. And so we had the privilege of having a Christ follower and a kingdom worker for Christ who came from a background where she was agnostic and then went into Wicca for a short period of time, thank you, Jesus, and then came to know the Lord through a beautiful process where her roommate 
was intricately involved. And then we had a chance to even hear from her roommate about the, that process and how God was working all the moving parts, right, so that so that his body would come and surround this beautiful sister in Christ so that she could accept Christ. All this to say the Lord is so active today. And if you're listening to this show and you're thinking, man, there's so much going on right now, I don't know if God is paying attention, right? Or I know God is paying attention, but who is getting harder and harder to see his hand or to see how there are any Christians out there? Take heart, take heart. This show is a really good example of how we have been more and more activated in Christ. For those of us who are putting our knees down and we are saying, Lord, may your will be done. No matter what it takes, may your will be done. You must be seeing some rapid, rapid transformation. I know I have, and I know that the Lord is in action. And so this is a show that has really been encouraging for me. And from what I've heard from some of you, uh, really been encouraging for you as you're hearing those different environments, as you're hearing the way God has been activating his body. It's just so exciting. I remember I went to a conference, a Hillsong conference. And the beginning of the Hillsong conference, they had all the lights were down. And all of a sudden they had people from all over the audience stand up and they were lit. And so at first you had just a few lights pop here and there and here and there. But before you knew it, there were so many little lights in different places in the auditorium that it was so bright in the midst of that darkness. I felt like that was such a beautiful representation of how God is actively working in the midst of a lot right now. So we're going to start a new show. We're going to start a new series on law. If you're currently in the legal field, or you are you you are in an environment where you know the law is sort of central to what you do on a day-to-day basis. We will be talking a little bit about what that means from a biblical perspective and then we will then have a chance to interview someone who is in the legal field who's an amazing brother in Christ. I'm just so excited to interview him. And um and someone very very dear to our family. We've known each other for quite a while. And who has, you know, a, a, his faith, he's journeying with Jesus in an authentic fashion, and he's going to get a chance to talk to us a little bit about that and what that means. So today will very specifically be on what does, how does God address the law? And how can some of us who are not in the environment of law, how can we apply some of these really practical tools on a day-to-day basis so we can be infectious for Jesus? Amen. All right, so let's get into the word. And as we are turning, we're going to actually start with Genesis 3. As you are turning and you have your Bibles, uh, I I want to give you a couple of main points. I'm almost going to give you the ending now so that you can think about it as we're going through the main points throughout the show. The thing that is beautiful about law is that very plainly put, it addresses a lot of the issues that are going on, right? It's sort of your, if you will, kind of a, it's an aha moment to an issue that has come up. Ah, exactly. So that's sort of how, that's at least what the law is supposed to do. Okay, so addressing an issue is clarifying. So that's one of the points, that's one of the good tools that we can actually use. When it comes to our faith, how can we address doubts 
either that we have or that others have when it comes to our faith. Okay. And then the second part is how can we introduce doubt when it comes to jury? If you're on a jury, you have to have, depending on the case, you have to have a unanimous vote. The only thing that can properly guarantee that that unanimous vote does not take place is when one of the attorneys can properly introduce doubt, right? Now, if you think about it, how can we possibly use that when it comes to our faith, right? One of the things that we can encounter on a daily basis, either within ourselves or with people that we encounter, we can encounter a lot of false ideologies, right? So let's take an example. I am not, uh, I'm not capable of doing this job well because I'm brand new and it just seems really overwhelming. Okay. That is a false sense of reality in that moment because you have made an assumption based on what? You haven't even been there too long, right? And so in that moment, how can you introduce doubt that will get you to break down that false sense of fear that you have, right? You and I can be that voice when it comes to being Christ's representative. When people present false assumptions as it relates to the gospel, when we internalize false assumptions as it relates to the gospel, what does it look like if we stand in a meeting in front of a whole bunch of people who have just asked, why are you so different than you were 10 years ago? What would it look like if in that moment, that fear that starts to grip us like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm standing in front of people and they're staring at me and what am I going to say and how am I going to, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. If we cut it and we say, wait a minute, hasn't God always taken care of me when I have spoken up in his name? Why would it be any different now? We've introduced doubt in the midst of our fears. So two really important tools, basic but important. One of them is we address issues. The second is we introduce doubt. But we only introduce doubt when it comes to the false assumptions that people have made about the gospel or that we have made about the gospel. That brings about fear on a day-to-day basis. So let's start out with Genesis 3. The beauty about Genesis 1 and 2 is that God creates everything, places man in the midst of an amazing paradise. Gives man a job right off the bat. Hey, you know what? I created everything, but just go ahead and name some stuff. You know, take some kind of responsibility. Experience what it is to have authority over this process of naming, right? And so it was made. God didn't give a whole bunch of do nots in the perfect Garden of Eden. He only gave one do not. So right off the bat, we see God's managerial style, if you will. Right, His love, his ample provision, the way he takes care of the people that he created is to give them a sense of what it is to live in perfect harmony with him. Not as a master to a slave, but as co-laborers, as a father to a son, 
that was the original intent. And so then we get to Genesis 3. And the only instruction God had given Adam and Eve was not to eat of the tree of knowledge of the tree of evil. Okay, so we we get to this point in Genesis 3, and it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Oh, but the serpent said to the woman, (laughs) you will surely not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that when the woman saw the tree was good for food, And it was a delight to her eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew in that moment they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves loincloths. But then heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat the man said the woman you gave to be with me she gave the fruit of the tree and then I ate and then the Lord said to the woman what is it that you have done the woman said the serpent deceived me and I ate the Lord said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, he said to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you to Adam. He said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns, thistles, it shall bring forth to you, for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of 
all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has come like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Here in this passage, there were um, a few shows ago, I think it was a few months ago, we went a little bit into God's incredible compassion in the midst of judgment. And one of the remarkable things in this passage over and over again when, when I read it is how God just cared so much to actually clothe them with more durable material than they had for themselves. You know, in this, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of his anger, in the midst of seeing the complete fall of a perfect, perfect plan that he had for, for man, he still had an incredible sense of compassion. And, and you know, as, as I'm reading this again, it's just amazing what a gracious God we serve. But the thing that really stands out in the context of what we're talking about today as it relates to the law, as it relates to that doubt. What Satan did in the beginning of this chapter, it says he was more crafty than any other other beast of the field that the Lord had made, is he said to the woman, he introduced doubt when it came to the woman's understanding of what God had said. And in the midst of introducing that doubt, unraveled a series of events that led to the fall. Now you and I, when we are in Jesus and when we remain in the Lord and when we are his hands, his feet, his body, and we are kingdom workers for Christ, get a chance to have certainty in what we know about God's sacrifice. And with that certainty, our hope is that we can stand firm in it. And be the ones to introduce doubt when people are blinded by the lies of the enemy. And so that's the first thing that I want to draw our attention to. You know what Satan has meant for evil, the Lord turns it around for good for the sake of those who love the Lord. That's in Romans 8. Now the thing about Romans 8 is that the entire chapter is about life in the spirit. It's really easy to take the very end verses of Romans 8 and say, oh, yeah, God is for me. Who can be against me? You know, and, and look at the outcomes. But the entire chapter, the, the, the majority of the chapter is about staying in the spirit and what the spirit, the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groans that cannot be understood, intercedes even when we don't know what to pray for. And then as an outcome of that, then everything works out. Everything turns right for those who love and serve the Lord. So you and I in that get to take a tool that the enemy intended for harm. And we get to use that when it comes to the context of defending our faith, 
or explaining faith or introducing people to the Lord or furthering their faith in such a way that they go to a deeper level with God, we get to use that tool, that tool of introducing doubt for the sake of his glory. Someone says to you, well, and we're actually going to talk about some questions and how I can only speak from my personal experience. And so I will give you how I have personally communicated when I have been asked these questions um, from people who are non-believers or for people who are believers but have doubts about the gospel. Okay, so we'll go through that a little bit later in the show. But the first tool that we want to pick up from this is that introduction of doubt and how we can use that introduction of doubt that Satan had intended for evil and really use it, flip it around so that we can be effective for Jesus. The second thing I want to point our attention to is the reason why they fell. Okay, what convinced the woman? What convinced the women to take that fruit? And let me be clear. If it wasn't the woman, it would have been the man. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been you and I. <laughs> okay, because at the end of the day, this gets to a very core issue a very core issue about our humanity without God. And he said this, he said, that serpent said to the woman, you surely, you will not surely die. This is verse four. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she suddenly turned from having provision from God, provision when it came to food, provision when it came to environment, habitat, everything, right? Adam and Eve were taken care of. They were in God's environment. He had created it. That was a secure thing that they had been exposed to, had experienced, should have known better. And in that very moment with that little statement from the enemy, the woman saw all of a sudden, oh, no, that's not God who provides our food. It's the tree, the trees. It's good for food. I will provide for myself by taking from that tree. She saw it was a delight to her eyes. She fell for the lust of what the tree had to offer. She saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She saw that wisdom couldn't possibly possibly come from God anymore. No, no, no. It came from that tree. That tree was going to make her like God. As a matter of fact, maybe God took a lot of that tree. That's the reason why God is God. I don't know. I don't know what exactly was going through Eve's mind. But the point is, the introduction of doubt broke apart her entire resolve and her entire theology in that very moment. And this is not even theology because she lived with God. She saw God. She communed with God. And yet she fell. And some of you can say, well, okay, well, she wasn't on earth as long as Adam was. Fine. That he fell. Right? Because it goes to the core of what God addresses and what God hates so much, which is pride. And that pride of thinking we can do everything by ourselves. We are our own person. We are capable. That's what brought about the fall. So you and I today, how does that apply? We live in a society where a lot of what we are experiencing on a day-to-day basis is I provide for myself. I am the breadwinner. 
I am this. I, if I work harder, I can succeed. If I, 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 me, 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 right? And you and I, when we're in Jesus Christ, you and I get to flip that script. Why does that script need to be flipped? Because at the end of the day, that is exactly what is continuously turning the body of Christ further and further away from the Lord and making us less and less salty, less and less bright as a light of Christ in environments that are impeccably dark, impeccably. And yes, impeccable is supposed to be a good thing. It's perfect, right? It's like, it's like perfect. Well, unfortunately, we're living in times where things are getting perfectly dark, it's really sad when I see people who are below the age of 16 talk about having abortions because of, of relationships that they have had. That's a really dark situation. But that light comes on when that very same person, a few weeks later, changes their mind. Because they were exposed to the truth of Jesus. They were exposed to the gift that they're carrying, they're exposed to the way in which he will handle that baby in such a way that all the negative experiences that that person has had before the tender age of 16, that it can be reversed for that baby. And that heart changes. That's what the gospel does. That's what happens when you and I are used to introduce doubt in the midst of complete and utter false lies of the enemy. So it's time, church. It's time that you and I get it together. Let's go ahead and start breaking down some things. Okay, let's break it down. Break it down. Okay. Let's go to the law in the Old Testament. Okay. So we, we see God started out in the beginning. He started out with this very simple instruction. Just don't eat of that tree. Okay. Everything else was co-labor with me. Help me to name these, you know, really let, enjoy this creation that I have for you. And then the next thing you see is man has fallen. Man is cast out of the garden of Eden. Get a series of, we don't have enough time, unfortunately, in this show to go through everything up to Noah. But then by the time we get to Noah, we have a destitute world such that God is having a really, really tough time finding even one person who is still faithful. I mean, he looks around and he, Noah is pleading before God and he's asking God, God, if you can just, you know, what if, what if you, what if there are 10 people, right, who are, who are faithful? What about, what about those people, right, right? And what if, what if, what if like two people were faithful and over and over and over again and you could just see God trying to find people who are going to be faithful, trying to see if anybody out there, is anybody out there listening, right? But unfortunately, he's, why? Because people started to understand that they, they can do things on their own. They don't need they, they don't need God. They just don't. The exact same sin that was there in 
Gardner is the exact same one that made them fall is the exact same one that has gotten human beings to the point where they literally are abhorrent to our Lord of Lords. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, the Lord saw how great their wickedness of the human race had become on earth and every inclination of thoughts of the human heart, only evil, all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Those, of, those people who heard before that God of the Old Testament a God of wrath and he's angry all the time. I need, I need, I'd like to actually read the verse again. The Lord regretted he had ma- made humans on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. God hates having to execute judgment on a human heart that has been completely hardened. That doesn't please him. He's not a God of wrath who's just angry and wants to destroy his creation for no reason. He was deeply troubled. Because he cares. And so he says, the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret. I regret that I've made them. But Noah. But Noah. (laughs) Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Noah, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was just full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had just corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. I'm going to stop here briefly. Again, if you hear the God of the Old Testament is an angry God who's careless, who just wants to destroy a bunch of people for no reason. Hear this. He found one righteous man. Everyone else was evil, and yet he cared enough about that righteous man to save both him and his family. We continue on verse 15. He says, this is how you are to build the ark. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 feet wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof of it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower and middle and upper decks. He cares. He's a God of details. I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. You are to bring into the ark to all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. 
And then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Can God find us righteous in our generation? You see, one of the tools that we have learned so far when it comes to, to, to law, to arguing, to defending our faith, that it could be, we can use the tool of introducing doubt as a way to debunk the false lies of the enemy. But then how do we use that tool to address our faith? How do we strengthen our faith? How do we present our faith to those who are really, truly seeking to know more? This is where we can really start to learn from our wonderful book of Matthew 27. Let's turn to that now. In Matthew 27, we see... Jesus before the governor. And we're going to start with verse 11. Now, we're going to go through this chapter to observe the way in which Jesus interacts with different players in this passage. Okay. Because in a lot of times when, we, when we're talking about defending our faith, the immediate response can be, well, yeah, defend it and say this, cite the Romans road, cite the fact that are, people are all sinners, and it's almost become a mechanical way of approaching the gospel. Let's, let's take a step back a little bit. The Great Commission starts with know that the Lord's authority in heaven and on earth is Jesus's. The only way to really know that is to have intimacy with him. When we have intimacy with him, he then navigates us because that comes first, and therefore, we then go make disciples of nations. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We teach them to obey his commandments. And in all that, we know that he's with us always to the end of the age. But if we go and we have our pre-made, pre-canned agendas to spreading the good news of the gospel, what happens is that we end up missing the leading of the Holy Spirit that is going to enable us to really be used in such a way that hearts will be transformed. Because the way Jesus can penetrate a heart is the only way a heart can be transformed. The best made man-made arguments will not transform a heart. They may affect questions in, a, in someone's mind. The heart transformation, that's only God. And so let's look at the way in which Jesus, under duress, under pressure, under false accusations from the entire crowd that should have known better, the one to whom the law had been entrusted, the one to whom traditions had been imparted for centuries, okay? This is the crowd that Jesus is before now. And the very people, the, the chief priests who functionality-wise were entrusted with knowing what it what God required, and especially knowing God and knowing, especially recognizing when his presence was here on earth, those very people have turned against Jesus. And it said this, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. 
But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, again, the people who should have known better, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? In other words, why aren't you saying anything? I mean, they're talking smack. What's going on? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Let's pause. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate is legitimately trying to understand if Jesus considers himself to be king, if Jesus considered any type of authority to be allocated to him. And Jesus rebuts back with a very simple but incredibly complex answer, and he says, you have said so. Let's take it outside for two seconds, okay? If, somebody, if you ask somebody, are you the ruler of the United States, for example, right? You're the president of the United States. You're the one with the most power in the U.S. And they said to you, you have said so. Don't you think that's going to introduce some serious questions, line of questionings inside your own entire head, your own head where you're going to be like, wait a minute, did I say so? What are they talking about? I don't understand. Why would he say that? Why would he say yes, right? I, I, why did I even actually, why did I even say that he is? Do I kind of believe maybe he is? I don't know. Maybe I do believe he is. No, I can't probably believe he is because he's, you get my sense, right? Jesus has introduced doubt inside Pilate's set of questioning. Jesus has opened his heart a little bit. And the reason why we can tell that something has been triggered is because of what takes place in the next following steps here. Let's keep going. We're in, we're in verse 15. He says, now at the, field, at the feast, excuse me, the governor was accustomed to release from the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who's called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the seat of judgment, his wife sent a word for him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. He, rather than have a riot, was beginning, excuse me, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water he washed his hands before the crowd, and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourselves. And the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. 
here is a man who asked a very straightforward question that was very specifically meant for information gathering in the beginning of this passage. Jesus actually answers him with somewhat of a convoluted answer that gets his mind going. Yeah, it gets him prepared for what's about to happen next. But when he, when the governor, when Pilate asked him, why aren't you defending yourself? Jesus did not waste his time. Jesus did not take this opportunity to make a really good case for himself. He didn't take the opportunity to make a great argument for the faith and the gospel and God being among them and them needing to repent and, and all that. And all this is to say that the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, when we remain in Jesus per John 15, and we accept the guidance of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, when we invite Jesus to overtake our day-to-day as a kingdom worker for Christ, the Lord will help us see the situations in which we are meant to respond and the ones where we are supposed to be silent. The overarching question when we are addressing our faith, when we are addressing the gospel, whether it's to get someone to a better place with Jesus, to a deeper level of understanding of who Jesus is, or to introduce him to them for the first time. One overarching question that we have to keep in mind is, what is the kingdom outcome if I put forth this next statement? What is the kingdom impact if I answer this question? I firmly believe that in that moment, Jesus saw the kingdom impact. He saw that Pilate needed to understand that even he, Pilate, somewhere deep inside, recognized the authority of Jesus. That was further confirmed by the fact that his wife was troubled because she even recognized the innocence and to some extent the authority of Jesus. And then he did not even take a single breath of air to address the false accusations because in the big picture, in the kingdom impact, it meant nothing. It meant nothing. Him arguing meant nothing. He had to go through the sacrifice. He had to go through the redemption of our sins so that you and I could have an opportunity to today dwell in eternity with him when we choose Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What is the kingdom impact? What is the kingdom outcome? That is the, the overarching question we can ask ourselves when it comes to using the tool of addressing doubts, addressing and communicating the gospel. There are a series of questions that I want to introduce to you, and these are questions that I have personally heard and been asked. And I'm going to to tell you how I have personally answered those questions. And this is simply to get us to start understanding, okay, what does it mean to have communications when it comes to some serious, some serious doubts that people are facing, including maybe even our spouse, okay, about the gospel? How would you respond? So as I'm reading through these questions, if you have a chance to jot them down, jot them down and then think about right? Really think about, one, have you ever heard those questions posed to you directly? Two, 
how will you approach praying about this so that you can properly address them if they come up? And three, what are some similar questions that have been asked and how did you address that? And I would really strongly urge you to actually write down what you have answered before, what the Holy Spirit has placed on your heart before, because it is through that, through these 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 remembrance tools that when life gets tough, when we start to ourselves have doubts, we can go back to these and say, oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. I know better than this. I know better than this. Can you imagine if the chief priests had been doing this, had been writing down the way in which God had answered their prayers, had been really observing the way in which God had forewarned them about Jesus, can you imagine? I really feel like Nicodemus must have had some remembrances. That's what brought him to Jesus in John 3 when he came and he said, wow, you're doing all these amazing things. How do you do them? And through that, he got a chance to understand what being born again was. I really believe that if believers in Jesus Christ can start to have tools to remember how amazingly active he is in today's every day, that we would be rejuvenated when he doesn't seem to be anywhere near a situation of despair because he is always in control, even if it seems like everything's falling apart. So here's one. Um, why is there suffering if there is a God? There's another one. All gods are the same. Why is it a requirement for us to suffer so we can experience God? Why would a God so good, anyone, to go to hell? Christianity is just a crutch for those who can't get through life's hardship. They just need a delusional reason to hang in there. How do you explain Jesus being fully God and subjecting himself to coming out of a woman if he's truly God? Why is God so exclusive that he wants nothing to do with homosexual people? I mean, he created them. How can Christians not see evolution for the scientific fact that he is? I don't understand. Especially well-educated Christians. How can they not see that evolution is the real way the earth came about? Now, I'm about to be very vulnerable and authentic and explain some of the ways that I have personally addressed these. That is definitely not to say, let me be clear, it's not to say this is, this is the way everyone should be addressing it. No, no, no. This is how I have addressed it before when I've been prayerful about it. And... What I encourage you to do is to write down these questions, write down questions that are similar that you have heard, and start to really pray about how you answer these. Ask the Lord for guidance. Identify the places where you are not sure, because when it comes to the beautiful thing about law and why we're talking about this from this biblical perspective, that is very different from, you know, this is not your, your typical um, delving into Bible and law but the reason we're talking about this is because when it comes to the practice of law today, a lot of it is looking for facts, looking for evidence, digging deeper, asking questions, introducing doubt, addressing the doubts, you know, and really, it really comes down to those two things, introducing the doubts and addressing the doubts. 
And if we can do that effectively when it comes to our reading of the Bible and with that critical eye and looking at the way in which we approach the word and how we respond to people who doubt, including ourselves, right? Then it gives us a leg up so that when we are in those situations, we come already understanding where we ourselves are shaky as well as where we ourselves have immovable truths. If Eve had had that immovable truth in that moment when the serpent said, don't you want to be like God? She would have been able to say, well, no, no, I don't want to be like, like God. Why would I want to be like God? I know that I can't create. He already created me. But by the way, serpent, he's given me some really cool job to do here. I got to name some animals. I got to co-labor with Adam. Like, I'm sorry, but some tree is just not going to cut what my God has already done. It's just not going to cut it. You know, he created the tree. Can the tree create another thing? No, the tree can't. Okay, serpent. So I, I'm, I'm, you go somewhere, right? That would have been the response. And, and you and I can really get to do that when we do this exercise. So how can Christians see, not see evolution for the scientific fact that it is, that it is? Well, we're not talking about, when we're talking about evolution, there is, you know, microevolution and macroevolution. Um, obviously, there is a space for things evolving um, on a micro level, right? So the level of understanding that I had when I was two has evolved, I hope, to at least four. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that, that's a micro evolution, okay? We, we can also see that to be the case with families. For example, when they change dietary habits and then over long generations, you can see a change, a shift in the way people down the line um, – you know, are, are carry out their health. But what you don't see is a jump from species, one species to another species. That's unprecedented before, unprecedented. So the thought that species jumped from one to another doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Let's even backtrack further down. You look at evolution as, okay, the one single atom developed into what we see today. So if I tell you something appears, you're at a magic show and I tell you that the magic trick that you are seeing just started and appeared by itself. And you're at a magic show and I tell you, no, no, there is, a, there is an actual magician in the back who's perfected these in such a way that you think you're seeing something appear out of thin air, but it's actually, you know, it's a magician, it's a, it's a magic show. To me, very logically speaking, it makes more sense that there is that magician that's at least a firm start that develops into the outcome that I'm seeing. That makes a lot more logical sense than, poof, it appeared out of thin air. And by the way, that atom then evolved into everything we're doing now. And that atom, by the way, jumped from species to, spe to a totally different species. That makes no sense to me. So that's how I've addressed that in the past. Why is God so exclusive? He wants nothing to do with homosexual people. That is absolutely false. God created you and me. He created everyone on this planet. He gave us choice. The choice to have premarital sex. We want to talk about homosexuality. We can't talk about homosexuality. We've without talking about heterosexual premarital sex, which is as evil, as sinful as homosexuality. And yes, 
that is absolutely not condoned by God. Either of those. Sin is sin. The sin of judgment, the sin of homosexuality, the sin of, uh, of heterosexual premarital sex, the sin of adultery, that is despised by the Lord. So he hates the sin. But he loves, he loves you and me. He continues to pursue you and me. As sinful as we are, he continues to put situations, places, his word continuously pursuing us, saying, come back to me, repent, 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 repent. I will be your God. You will be my people. God wants something to do with every single person on this planet today. And that's reality. That's truth. That's gospel right there. He died for that person who today is committing the premarital sex sin, the homosexual sin. He died for that person committing the judgment sin. He died for those people. And he do it all over again because he loved so much the world. He gave his only son that whosoever, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, John 3. Christianity is a crutch for those who can't get through life's hardship. They needed a delusional reason to hang in there. What's amazing to me when people say that is that if that was the case, the delusion at some point would wear off. I personally, from my experience, can tell you, and this is where personal testimony and being willing to be vulnerable and authentic comes in handy, can tell you that (laughs) I can barely keep up with a workout routine let alone a delusion for years and years and years and years on end. Jesus is as real as the wind that I am breathing in yet cannot see. He says it in his word in John 3. He explains it beautifully in such a methodical fashion to Nicodemus as to what faith is. As real as that wind is, even though I can't see it, as real as that wind is, that's how real Jesus is. It's not a crutch. He is it. He is the only thing making me alive today. Why would a God so good want anyone to go to hell? He doesn't. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He pursues every day so that we won't go to hell. We just read a passage where it said God was deeply troubled before he essentially wiped out everyone who was here, but it told you the condition of the people's heart. Their hearts were so evil that their thoughts were evil. And yet he still weeped. He was still, excuse me, not weep, but he, st- he was still troubled for them because we serve a God who cares. Why is it a requirement for us to suffer to experience God? It's absolutely not a requirement. Adam and Eve had it made. He didn't require them to suffer. They made a choice. The complexity of God and the brilliance of God, I just love how amazingly brilliant God is. And I, I, I can't even start to fathom what it's like for him on a day-to-day basis to put up with us. But he gave us perfect choice, did not jeopardize that choice, and simultaneously gave us the ability to be redeemed back to him. I don't... I can't even start to graze the surface 
of how complex that is. To be able to maneuver the choices of every single one of us and yet allow a perfect back to him. It's amazing to me. It's not a requirement for us to suffer, but you and I fail every single day because the sum total of our choices brings us to a point where we experience the brokenness of sin, the sinful broken world. And sometimes it's not even our choices, it's the choices of people before us and it's brokenness in its entirety as we live this life. All gods are the same. Name one God who said, you know what? I'm not going to let you just serve me. Just give me offerings. Just exalt me above my throne. I'm actually going to come to you. I care so much about you. I'm so compassionate for my creation that I'm actually going to go and experience what my creation experiences. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to forge a clear path, clear path ahead, so that if they stay within this path, they're coming straight back to me, where I can really give them the privilege of dwelling with me for eternity, where it's not just this temporary thing that they experience, but they can experience the fullness of what I have to offer, because I care that much about my children. Name any other God outside of Christ, any other God that did that, and then tell me that all gods are the same. Why is there suffering if there is God? Brokenness and sin. In the very short time that you and I have lived, we can see that global warming as, a, as an example, okay, has manifested. We had choices we made, and, and this is not pointing figures or anything like that, but the sum total of how we care for our environment is rendering effects, and those effects we can see are depleting the resources in this planet, right? And this is very very short period of time here. We're talking about a few decades. And this is what happens with sin. I think it's a beautiful example of what can happen with sin. One decision leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And before you know it, you have a series of really bad decisions that are bringing about brokenness. What we're experiencing, the suffering we experience, especially suffering where it's not based on decisions that we've directly made, is a sum total of the brokenness of sin. It is a perfect picture of how Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy us. It is the reason why being in Jesus is so important. It is essential that we remain in him, especially because suffering is going to happen, but suffering in Jesus is a completely different type of suffering than outside of Jesus. How do you explain Jesus coming from a woman if he's God? This was interesting. I actually got this question from someone who was of Muslim faith, and it was a very, very difficult um, very difficult concept for this man to understand that God in his sovereignty would want to experience what man has experienced. And in that moment, I just prayed and I listened and I prayed and I listened and I asked a couple of questions about, you know, what is it, who he thinks Jesus is. And he explained, you know, that he was a prophet and, and a lot of what the Quran answers about Jesus. And I said, if you were God, you do everything perfectly, right? I said yes. 
And I said, so if you're God and you want to clean up a nice, clear path for people living on earth to come to you, why in your perfection would you start to clear that path from halfway through their life? In other words, why would God come from his throne as a fully grown man, right, and not experience what it is to go through the very birth process all the way through the death process all the way to the resurrection to clear that perfect path for man to follow to an eternity with him. And I told him in that moment that Jesus cared so much that he started that process, that cleanup process for man willing to follow him all the way from the womb, all the way into the pits of death, all the way out of death into the heavenly places where he dwells. That's a God worth serving. If you're listening to this show today, thank you so much. Especially thank you to those who are listening and who are not yet believers, because let me tell you something. This is not a coincidence. God loves you. He's pursuing you. And know that in this moment, even though you do not believe, he is after your heart because he wants the best for you. If you have questions you want to talk further about this, please email us at contact at kingdomworkforchrist.com. For those of you who are listening in who are believers in Jesus Christ, continue to delve deeper in him. It is due time that you and I get stronger in our intimacy with Jesus because the time is near. In the meantime, what recap of what we've talked about, two really basic things that we can do and really start considering. How do we introduce doubt and address doubts when it comes to being a kingdom worker for Christ? in the field of law. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this hour. Thank you for the rich way in which you prune us. Lord, I pray that the seeds planted within our hearts will bear fruit. I pray for radical transformation, Lord, among people who do not believe in you, that they may understand the power of your cross and the cost of your sacrifice. I pray, Lord, that your body will get more serious about you, God. I pray that we will get more in-depth in being intimate with you rather than anything else. And as a byproduct of that, then we can go and make disciples of nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey your commandments. And then we can know that you're with us always to the end of the age. God, I'm thankful for this day. Lord, I pray a blessed night and a continued perseverance in you. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining. I am so excited to continue to serve you in this way. Looking forward to continuing to serve you next time. In the meantime, bye-bye.